0: Well hello and welcome to the Mariner's Library with me Chris Tamwell-Major. In this episode we're continuing The Cruises of the Joan by W.E. Sinclair. We're on part 9 and we're starting chapter 15. If you haven't already please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner and there for $5 a month you can join the crew and support the podcast. Now on with the story. Chapter 15. The last passage and other things we scrubbed the boat at St. Moore's and had a general clean-up to prepare the boat for the journey up channel. Then we had a merry, lazy three weeks recovering from the hardships we professed to have endured. But at last, Byford celebrated too many birthdays on the one evening, and as the next morning the wind came westerly, we went at once. the wind became so fair and strong before we reached the Eddystone that I had qualms about the dinky's ability to stand it. Towing a dinky is always a worry, but we could not afford to waste fair winds, and we decided to risk the straight-through passage. There was no chance of getting a fair four hours off on this trip, except during the day. At night, the traffic was so great that we both had to be up and ready to show our flare as a warning to steamers to give our little boat a chance. Off Beachy Head, I trembled for the dinghy, not that she would break away, but that she might fill. The wind was too strong and the sea too bad for the little mite, but we could give her no attention. Outside the Royal Sovereign especially, the steamer traffic required all our energies. When daylight came, we hauled the dinghy alongside for inspection, but we did not see enough water in her to be worth the trouble of bailing out. Handing the tiller to Byford, I went into the cabin to make a breakfast, and as I stood looking out over the stern of the dinghy, a single, toppling wave fell into her. She sheered wildly, lay over to the next wave, and filled. Then she turned upside down, and suddenly we had a powerful sea anchor behind us. We hove to and pulled on the tow rope, but our efforts were useless. Sails were lowered, therefore, and we hauled the dinghy up to the lee quarter. If there had been room on the Joan to stand and move so that we could exert what strength we had, we might have pulled the boat right inboard over the rail and then launched her quite empty of water. But we had both to stand in the cockpit, and the utmost we could do was to pull her half out and let her fall back quickly into the water. On the third attempt, this succeeded, and we had the dinghy only nine tenths filled. She was now bailed out from the Joan's cockpit and sent astern to her proper place once more. The struggle with the dinghy had occupied us for more than an hour, and we had paid no attention to other matters. By the time we were finished, a heavy mist had fallen, the sea had dropped, and on setting sail and trying to get again on our course, we were astonished to find that the wind had gone right round and was now light east. We knew we must be somewhere a few miles south of Hastings, and we turned slowly and sadly all the day. We caught sight of Dungeness about noon, When dark came, the accumulation of traffic again surprised us. We counted more than a dozen steamers, not once, but all the time. As one dozen scattered, another dozen loomed up, and we were kept busy on the lookout and using our life-saving flares, until a breeze sprang up with a favouring tide, and we went clear of the Ness. We spent the next foul tide in light airs off the South Foreland, and on Saturday morning, in a strong westerly, we hurried past Deal rushed in frantic haste through the Gulf Stream and tore towards Margate, expecting to be able to anchor off that place for the night. I thought that the wind had enough south in it to make an anchorage there a safe proceeding, but as we put our bow clear of the North Foreland, we found the wind right down along, and so we reluctantly beat back to Ramsgate. It was a long struggle to turn over the tide through the old Cud Channel, and it occupied us during most of the ebb. As it was nearly low water, we tied up in the west gully. We passed a week at Ramsgate. It blew several gales during the week, and the inner dock where we might have been cosy was closed to us, for a notice was posted that the basin would be allowed to empty. On inquiry, I was told that the mud was soft and that the boats would merely stand upright in it. So I would not go in, for I concluded that this was untrue. My reasoning was sound. Later on the dock gate was kept closed because the said weather was too bad. We lay and bounced and rolled in the west gully, worried by steam trawlers warping past us and by boats for whom we had to slack off our own warps. One night our stern warp frayed on the rusty iron ring on which we had tied a bowline and as we had to get a neighbouring yacht to mind our dinghy we had an unmerry night before we contrived to tie the Joan properly once more. We got away from this unhappy harbour at last. We beat through the narrow gore channel, where we thought it far worse than being on a sea anchor in the Atlantic. We went up river, ran ashore above the Chapham in a fog, crawled into Holehaven for refuge from it, plugged up the river for a part of the next tide as far as Grays, and at last, on Monday afternoon, october twenty sixth, we picked up our moorings off the clubhouse at Erith after an absence of nearly six months. During some effort we made in Falmouth to buy a kedge anchor, we discovered the cave of a marine stores dealer. He hadn't a kedge our size, but he had many other things that interested us. We bought a fathom of rusty chain, which we afterwards used for a purpose not originally intended, and a couple of brass tubes to screw along the interior of the cabin, combing as life preservers. One of these was fastened stoutly, and it served its purpose well. My life was saved over and over again by grasping it. When the boat rolled, and when she did not, it was dangerous to stand on one leg. You were certain to be thrown against a corner, and it was certain to be your head that met that corner. When we dressed for deck, putting on thigh boots and oilskins, we could hold our life preserver rail with one hand while we dressed ourselves with the other. The second tube was meant to be fastened similarly on the opposite side, but this was never done, We must have lost the screws or the screwdriver or postponed the work in order to row ashore for a drink. The tube worried me for some time, for the Joan was so small that I hated to see any unnecessary article occupying space. It took months to discover a use for it, but at last we invented a flare which required a hollow tube in its specification. This flare was our last imploring appeal to a steamer to go away and leave us to our fate, so that this too, in its way, was a life preserver. We bought two more things in this store. One was, well, I don't know what it was. Made of solid brass, a metal that appears to be valuable, although I have never been able to sell unwanted pieces, the instrument was composed of four separate portions. Two of the pieces had sighting slots to take the bearings of an object. The slots were choked with grease and dirt, which I cleaned out after the voyage was over. A plate, marked like a compass card, had a central pivot on which the sighting parts could be turned, and for all these there was a gimballed stand which was to be stood up and screwed down for use. We never succeeded in setting it up so as to be of any service. Our idea was to take a bearing of something or other at some time. I took to calling it a polariscope, but Byford insisted that it was a Polaris, Whenever on rare occasions we met anybody who knew less about the thing than we did, we used to show it. It never failed to create a profound belief in us. It was in this marine cave too that we bought a sea anchor. Our desire to possess one had not been satisfied because no sea anchor had been pushed into our hands with the price on the label. So few people buy sea anchors that it would be useless to ask your local grocer to sell you a sample. You are first to discover where to buy them and then you must go through the course of training that will give you a chance of getting what you want in your dealings with the seller. Of course, if you do know exactly what you want and can tell it when you see it, the matter is simple enough. After finding the shop, you examine everything shown you and when you can't wait any longer, you go about your business. That has always been my experience. Whenever I really knew exactly what it was I desired, I never got it. But whenever my ideas were vague, the bargain simplified itself. The shopkeeper merely showed me something, and I bought it. All shopkeepers are my enemies. I asked Byford to swat sea anchors, to buy one for our use and to bring it aboard. Having settled that matter, I thought no more about sea anchors. On our way down the channel, the mate asked me if I'd bought a sea anchor. Of course not. I left it to you. ''I thought you said you'd see to it,'' he replied. ''Well, it doesn't matter. I don't see that a sea anchor is a necessity.'' And I did not think a sea anchor was a necessity, although I was keenly interested in them as a topic of conversation. Wyford and I had both read the cruises of the Snark, the Tillicum, and the Typhoon, boats sailed by men who experimented with sea anchors, and we knew all the opinions of the experts. These varied from scorn to worship.'' I had already tried an improvised sea anchor on the Joan and was unimpressed by its usefulness. One thing I had observed about the Joan was that if you stowed all the sails and let her do as she pleased, she would pull through some very bad weather without alarming you. And the position she liked best was beam onto everything. The snark took no notice of her sea anchor, the typhoon frayed her warp in a minute or two, lost the anchor and did excellently without it. Alain Gerbalt thinks his boat, the Firecrest, did just as well without one, and Voss remains as the only advocate, but his advocacy is so positive, powerful and convincing, that it is worth more than the evidence of 20 who may not have found any benefit in the use of a sea anchor. At any rate, Byford thought a sea anchor was a necessity, and I thought so, too, if one was required to bring Byford along. We were first attracted to a proper shop where they sold things in a refined manner and we asked to be shown their sea anchors. The assistant reached down one from a shelf and displayed its charms. It was clean, snowy white and had nice little manila cords tied to the ring. Is this one according to the board of trade requirements, I asked, for I wanted to begin the dealing impressively Oh yes, uh, strictly according to the Board of Trade Regulations, replied the shopman. He looked at me, and I looked at him. He knew he was bluffing me, and I didn't know whether any regulation existed or not. After a moment's reflection, it appeared to me that the shopman was far more anxious to sell me something than he was to save me from being drowned. I refused the sea anchor at the price, I believe, of 15 shillings, The marine store sea anchor was slung among a lot of old rope when we happened to see it. It was a dirty looking thing, but it was made of canvas, all flax, strongly sewn about a wooden rim, two feet in diameter. From base to apex it was three feet, and right in the point were two small isleted holes. One I knew was to allow the escape of water, the other I thought must be for a tripping line, which being knotted inside would block both holes. We bought the bag for 5 shillings, which does not seem an excessive price for saving 2 lives. We sewed 4 lengths of new manila rope symmetrically along the whole of its length, leaving short ends at the head and long ends at the mouth. The short ends were tied together and we had some notion of fastening a tripping line there. The long ends were spliced and lashed that they would pull squarely on the canvas bag. We tied 20 fathoms of 3 inch bass warp to its bridle splicing the ends of the warp to the standing part, then we stowed the apparatus and left it untouched for over three months. Off Cap Finisterre during our first spell of bad weather we made no use of the sea anchor. The boat all the time lay to under a trysail, and although we had a wet time on deck the Joan was not really in any danger. In Funchal Bay we put the sea anchor in the water one fine calm day to see what it would do. It sank gently to the bottom until a warp was pulled and then it followed the direction of the pull. We tied a fathom of chain to one point of the rim, and to the opposite point, two fathoms of rope with a boy on the end. A few Funchalese who saw us play with the bag were interested, but they made nothing of it. But as they looked upon us as victims offering ourselves for immolation for some unknown reason, they smiled affably and took us ashore for another drink. The first time we put the anchor over on business, it disappeared gently beneath the water until the warp hung nearly straight up and down. The wind and sea, although bad, were not bad enough to make the drogue act. At the same time, no water was splashing over and with our trysail set we were lying to in moderate comfort. It was still more comfortable when the wind blew harder and made the sea anchor effective. The harder it blew, the better the sea anchor worked. We found that our mizzen sail was needed when we were thus riding. The Joan had had a new mizzenmast and a new jib-headed flax mizzen sail, whose area was 35 square feet. I could trust these as well as the standing and running rigging, because they were all new and all in good condition. I had doubts about the boom, which is a tiny spar seven feet long and two and a quarter inches in diameter, and about the bumpkin, which I thought ought to be stayed. To arrange for this took much of our thought, some of our time and a little of our money. We had a stout eye screwed into the transom on the waterline in order to hook on the bumpkin bobstay when we were about to use the mizzen as a riding sail and we bought wire and other gear but we got no further. The eye proved a nuisance for the rudder was sometimes banged against it and we had to place a rope fender over it to soften the blows. But in spite of the delicacy of our boom and the unsupported state of our bumpkin, there was never a sign of their being overstrained. When we rode to our anchor, the mizzen never shook. There was always a steady strain on sheet and spars and no jerking and slamming. Once the anchor was in the water, the Joan did not offer to change tack. Only when the wind decreased and the anchor could no longer act did waves twice catch her bow at an opportune moment and swing her over. And there was no harm in that. With the drogue out, the mizzen set, and the wind blowing hard enough, the result was as near perfection as anybody should expect. The boat rode gaily up and down, each wave, keeping steadily four points off the wind. She rode like the much-quoted duck is supposed to ride. No water worth troubling about came over, we no longer found it comforting to pump, and we generally had our sliding hatch in the cuddy-top open wide, our drift was half a mile an hour. Sea anchor drill was practiced and after two experiences we used to long for weather suitable for the anchor. Then only could we be sure of having a long sleep both at the same time. Then we made each other's acquaintance and wrote up our neglected log. No watches were kept then except during the night when we had to keep a lookout for vessels, for it might be necessary to signal our presence. The man on watch at night sat in the cabin and wrote and read, soaked himself with tea or cocoa, chewed biscuit and smoked his pipe. Did as he pleased, in fact, so long as he put his head outside every ten minutes. There'll be some sea anchors bought when we get back to Erith and Bugsby, said the mate. When they get my report, there'll be a rush on sea anchors. Well, no good in the Thames. Quite enough trouble to dodge steamers. I don't know so much about that. I can see in imagination all our crowd going for a sea anchor sail and sea reach. I suppose it'll hold up the traffic a bit till they discover what they're doing. The Jones gear suffered a little from chafe. One shroud lanyard had to be renewed and one rudder had a fresh piece of rope spliced into the middle of it. The same standing and running gear was used through the cruise the next year. We carried side lights and inefficient shades. For all I know the side lights were inefficient too. I've never seen them in action from the outside, and I suspect that they might as well not be there. One anchor lamp is small, but it is good. We had it alight every night, and it went out only twice, and that in a single night in a single hour. Accident, I suppose. It was placed as high up on the mizzen rigging as we could reach. I favoured this position because it there acted as a stern light when the mizzen sail was stowed. It showed as far round in a circle as it would have done from any other part of the boat, we could always see it even when we were in the cabin, we could always get at it, and it afforded a convenient illumination over the well and the decks. If any overtaking vessel appeared not to notice this light, we gave them the opportunity of seeing our patent paraffin flare, a gorgeous and startling illumination of our own devising. It never failed to procure attention. If any other vessel appeared too much on our line, we manoeuvred to show them our mizzen light and kept the flare ready for action. The shipyard's bill for preparing the Joan for her summer's cruise to Madeira was £70. Charts and navigating instruments cost another £12, and insurance another £12. In round figures, the trip cost me £100, over and above the usual expenses of running the boat. Byford and I made an effort to keep an account of what we had each spent, but we failed. We kept up this fast for a week or so and then quietly dropped it. We each paid for things as we thought we would, and at the end of the cruise we looked at our bank books and the winner paid the loser half the difference. This worked out to £50 apiece for a 6 months' cruise. Many friends showed such a great interest in the fate of the pigeon we picked up off Finisterre that I was compelled to make inquiries about him. The Racing Pigeon Journal was good enough to look into the matter for me, But although they gave me the pigeon owner's address, and although the editor wrote to the owner, and although I wrote to the owner enclosing a stamped addressed envelope for reply, and although I assured him that I was interested merely in the fate of the pigeon, in spite of these well-made attempts to drag a line of information from the owner of the pigeon, we heard nothing. No letters were answered, and none were ever returned. Well, that's the end of today's reading. I hope you enjoyed it. If you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner, where for $5 a month, you can help support this podcast. If you do want to engage with more of the content there, there's uh, unique videos, more podcasts, blogs, lots of different things, and a growing community of people who are interested in all things sailing. That's patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. Well, that's all from the Mariner's Library today, and I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers.